Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We have some breaking vaccine news. The Astra Oxford vaccine efficacy has been confirmed now in peer-reviewed data. Apparently, the Astra Oxford vaccine prevents the worst COVID symptoms in this particular study. It's effective, but it does leave questions in older ages. This is all according to a peer review study. Ten hospitalization cases seen in the trial all occurred among those given a placebo. Let's bring in somebody who knows a little bit more about the background to this particular vaccine and has been looking at the results and is looking at these headlines as they come out now. Michelle Cortez, health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg. So, Michelle, this is good, but relatively speaking, is it as good as the other vaccine news we've been hearing? You know, Vani, it's a great question, and it actually is not appearing to be as effective as the Pfizer and Moderna trials. That being said, there was a little bit of a hiccup with this trial. In fact, there were there were a couple, which is really to be expected given the pace of development here. They originally were only going to be using one dose of the vaccine. Then they realized it would be more effective if they did two, so they added that second dose in later. And of course, there was an issue where some of the patients or some of the volunteers in the trial got actually half of the dose in that first injection than they were expected to get. And that unexpectedly turned out to be much more effective, a 90% vaccination efficacy rate with that smaller first dose with only a you know 63% efficacy rate in the people who got both full doses. So that's unexpected. There's wow. going to have to be more research here. Mm. So Michelle, kind of, have we got any more clarity on that, uh, you know, that half dose issue that we learned about a couple of weeks ago that seemed to surprise a lot of people uh, in the community? Right. It, it is inexplicable. I mean, we do know that the, the people who got that half dose were actually a younger group of patients. And so they are less likely to get severe disease. They're less likely to become infected. So there could be some explanation happening there. But indeed, we don't exactly know what's going on here. The company has said that they do plan to do another trial to look at this specific effect. That should not take as long to do because you're just looking at how the body responds to the vaccine. 
So we should be able to get through that pretty quickly. But even when you're looking at the higher efficacy rates, it's not quite reaching the levels that we're seeing with Pfizer and Moderna. It does appear that less is more in this case, but but that may not be the full story. What does Astra do next? I mean, is this good enough data to release the vaccine into the wild as Pfizer has already done, or do they have to do more? Well, they have said that they're going to be doing more as well. And of course, the fact is, is that we're not going to have enough vaccine to protect the entire world for some time to come. So when you're looking at a 90% efficacy rate in, with this lower first dose, I mean, that is still extraordinary. It is absolutely unbelievable that they were able to get this effect. This trial was done in some very high-risk areas. A lot of these patients were in Brazil, which is having you know a massive outbreak. And the idea that you can be getting this vaccine to people across the world who would otherwise have no no protection against the virus is really breathtaking. It, you, can't un, you can't overestimate how important it is. It is really important to be getting all of these vaccines. Yeah. So, Michelle, it, it seems like, again, you know, we were started this process when we started talking about vaccines and we were kind of uh, told that, gee, if you get a 50 or 60 percent efficacy rate, uh, that's good. And obviously now we're getting much, much higher rates. So it, it seems to me that while the AstraZeneca perhaps is not on par with some of its competitors or peers, it's still very good. Is that the expectation that this is still a good uh, number? It is a good uh, it's good science. It's a good uh, vaccine and that it will be effective in the marketplace. Absolutely. It is. It's an astonishing vaccine. We're we're even seeing, you know, some some data coming out of this trial that we haven't seen as much with the other trials. For example, we know that the Astra vaccine is preventing asymptomatic cases. So for people who didn't show any signs or symptoms of the disease, but might still be infected, this vaccine is actually protecting against that. That's very important to know that there's not some latent level of vaccine circulating among the people who got this vaccine. And you have to remember, the numbers are astonishing. In this low dose group of people, there were seven cases out of over a thousand people who were treated with the vaccine. I mean, that's just amazing to think yep. that you can get that kind of efficacy, even if it's not, you know, in it, in comparison, there was one in the Pfizer trial. But still, I mean, we're talking about seven people, one people, it's a handful of people. It's remarkable no matter which way you look at it. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, the fact that you can prevent it, you know, in people who might otherwise be asymptomatic, that's really important because it's the people who don't have it that are, that that you don't know have it that are dangerous. I mean, if somebody is coughing in front of you, you're obviously not going to, you know, go near them. But if there's somebody looking completely healthy who may have the virus, you wouldn't know that necessarily. So how is this different to the mRNA platform? How are... uh, Oxford and Astra approaching this differently to, say, Pfizer and the others? Right. Well, they are different technologies. The mRNA, ta- uh, the mRNA vaccines are brand new. There are no vaccines like this out there in the world. This will be the first vaccine using this technology ever developed. It is, again, I mean, I keep saying remarkable, but it's just like, how, how do you do that? It's a vaccine that we've never even tried before. And they're like, well, let's try it. And not only let's try it, but in less than 10 months, we're going to start from zero and actually get it into people's arms. Um, the way that vaccine works is it actually delivers a little bit of the genetic sequence. So your cells are producing a bit of the spike protein showing your immune system what they should be going after. The after vaccine is a little bit different. It actually develops, it delivers the virus itself 
to an inactivated version of it into the cells themselves. And so then they are producing that protein. And so they know what to go after. It's a different approach. Same idea in terms of exposing the immune system to the virus so that it'll know what to look at. The Astra vaccine will be easier to deliver. It doesn't require this super cold chain delivery system that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines do need. So there are different different approaches here. Each one has different benefits and risks. You know, if you are a a country that is very hot, that doesn't have great consistent electricity, you're probably not going to want the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine anyway. You might not have the technology to deliver that. So having the Astra version would be helpful for these areas. And Michelle, what do we know about the the timing uh, of getting approval for this vaccine across the world? We're seeing it almost daily, including today with the FDA and, and the Pfizer news. What do we know about the Astra timeline? Well, it's interesting because Astra was on hold longer in the U.S. than it was in other places, specifically in Europe. The FDA has been very cautious when it comes to reviewing all of these vaccines, making sure that they're dotting every I and crossing every T. So when it looks like for the U.S., Astra is going to be a, a while delayed here. It's probably going to take a, you know, a couple of months at least to get this additional trial underway and to figure out exactly where we're going. Certainly, there are other countries where we will most likely see Astra going much more quickly and getting their vaccine onto the market in other areas more quickly, that could happen within the next month or two. Michelle, this idea uh, that was out that the Trump administration didn't put in a big enough order with Pfizer, how is that being received? Well, the Trump administration is saying that they have ordered enough vaccine to cover the entire U.S. population. Anybody who's interested in getting vaccinated should be able to have access to that by the end of the summer. What their approach was they were ordering 100 million doses from each of the different vaccine companies so that they would be broadening out their exposure level. So if one doesn't work, then they haven't already purchased an awful lot of that and and not enough of something else. So they did it broadly, you know, ordering 600 million doses across various vaccines. Of course, now we know that there's one or two that are highly effective. You want to get all of that as much as you possibly can. And as you point out, they have already sold that vaccine to other places. So it's going to be yet until the summer before they can start delivering more of those doses to the U.S. government. We'll have to see if, we, if we're if we going to need those doses or not. At this point, we're still getting results from the other vaccine manufacturers, and there could be additional benefits. Maybe you only need one shot from some of these vaccines. The side effects, they're very mild, but they do occur, and they occur in more than half of people in some cases. So there are other vaccines that are being developed still that might have less of those sort of issues, or maybe they're more effective in older people. So there's still details to be teased out here. It does look like, you know, a little bit of a setback that the U.S. isn't going to get as much of this first Pfizer vaccine as they want. But ultimately, it's going to be hard to get it into everybody. And so we have to see how it plays out. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your reporting there. Michelle Cortez, health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly.
Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Let's move to Tesla. Paul, you mentioned it earlier on, speaking with Dave Wilson. It's up at 626.95 now. And, you know, it just continues to, to move on up. It's going to sell shares, sees proceeds of up to $5 billion. There just doesn't seem to be any stopping the investors in this company. Let's bring in Dan Ives of Wedbush, uh, analyst on Tesla. So, Dan, talk to us about this share price. Is it warranted? Should we throw another $5 billion at this company? It's a great question. I mean, we our bull case is $1,000. And, and we continue to view this right now as just a transformational market in terms of EV demand. And if you look at EV market, right now it's Tesla's world and everyone else is paying rent. And I think that's what investors are looking at. They're looking at what this market's going to be in the next three to four years. Now, obviously, stock could continue to be volatile. But in terms of playing the EV space, when you look out, you know, I think that right now is, is why this stock continues to move higher. You know, just given the supply demand, I'm sure EV plays. So, Dan, give us a, a sense here of use of proceeds here. Is this simply, let's shore up the balance sheet, raise capital when we can, not necessarily when we need it? Well, th- that's exactly it, Paul. I mean, this is $12 billion and counting in terms of what they've raised. Go back a year ago, that was the biggest bear thesis in terms of shoring up the balance sheet. They were not profitable. Now you got profitability. They're hitting when the iron's hot in terms of raising capital. And it really throws that bear thesis out the window. And that's really the key when you go forward in terms of the Tesla story. Now you don't have any balance sheet issues. So in, until he spends it, I mean, he, he seems to have an unlimited ability to spend the money that he gets in. So how, for how long will there be no balance sheet issues? Even with capital deployment in Berlin as well as in Austin, I mean, this really shores him up for the next few years in terms of those capital issues. And now investors view it as what's the growth opportunity going forward. And right now, if you look at EV, especially in China, you know, Tesla's really seen an inflection of demand and profitable. That speaks to the S&P 500 inclusion, which is different from a year ago. Hey, Dan, give us a sense here. Let's take a step back here. It just feels like uh, we're starting to hear more and more out of the uh, traditional automakers in terms of maybe some product introductions, some EV uh, products in particular. How do you think the traditional auto manufacturers over the next five years are going to move on EVs? And, and, and how do you think that, to what extent is that a risk to Tesla? Well, I think if you look at GM spending $20 billion in the next five years on EV. And I think it speaks to what's happening is this is really going to be today. It's 3% overall automotive sales worldwide. I think that goes to 10% by 2025. I think traditional automakers of you in this, you're going to have tax incentives. Of course, you have it in Europe. I think with the Biden administration doubling down tax incentives in the U.S. And ultimately, from a multiple perspective, remember, Tesla doesn't get treated as an automotive company. It's a technology, disruptive technology name. And I think automotives and the boards, they also recognize that. More and more success on EV, you could start to see names like GM, Ford get re-rated on that success. 
couple of questions, Dan, if you don't mind. One is you've been underperformed on Nicola, so you, you obviously feel like that's a whole different type of story and the similarities that we see between the Nicola story and the Tesla story, really maybe we shouldn't be seeing them. So I want to ask you about that. I also want to ask you if Elon Musk is spread too thin and why people have stopped complaining about that. They used to complain about that when it came to Jack Dorsey all the time. Yeah, and in terms of Nicola, I mean, our cautious stance has been just some of the company-specific issues going on, you know, especially with GM and others. I do think that those start to clear over the next three to six months, but that's why we've been more cautious on Nikola, even though they still have great prototype and opportunity. I think, look, it's not a, you can't paint every, you know, company with the same brush. And, and I think in terms of EV, you know, going to, to the must question, I mean, he's kind of had that red cape. He's been able to, to do Superman-like things, not just with Tesla, but, of course, with SpaceX. So I think that's not as much of a concern for investors, just given what you've seen, more maturity, more profitability. They've scaled across the globe and must continues to kind of navigate that, as well as a strong bench uh, that, that they've started to develop uh, over at Fremont. So... It, it, you know, it's interesting, Dan, as we think about the Tesla story, it's always just a, what's the next catalyst? What's the next catalyst? You know, um, is it, when you take a look at the Tesla story, is it new products? Is it manufacturing numbers? What are investors really focusing on in terms of metrics these days? Yeah, metrics right now, laser focused on China. I mean, I think China could be worth $100 per share. That's the focus, looking at what we see. We've already seen strength in terms of this quarter going into next year, you know, can they get to 250,000 units potentially in China from 150 first year out? That's going to be the key. And then it's the drum roll to the cyber truck. I mean, that's going to be the next, you know, really potential game changer model. And you're seeing that pickup truck market, not just Tesla, it's Ford, GM, and obviously Rivian. You know, that's a whole nother opportunity in terms of EV. And it speaks to what you're seeing in these stocks, not just in the U.S., but even in China with Neo and others, just you know, really in the early days of this market breaking out. What's your, your favorite company or your most preferred company, I suppose, in your coverage universe? You cover a lot of companies that are relevant to the current period, including DocuSign and, and companies like that. Yeah, well, DocuSign has been our favorite work from home name, along with Zscale. I think you got to play cloud and cybersecurity as core themes. And then our favorite large cap continues to be Apple. I think going into a super cycle, demand looks very strong going into next year. And that continues to be our favorite large cap name, along with Microsoft, to play the cloud. And those are the keys, cloud, cybersecurity, and these large tech names. We still think tech stocks a year from now are 30% higher. Dan, Apple's had a bunch of news out today, some new products, some headphones, some chips. What's the takeaway from what you've heard from Apple over the last 24 hours? Yeah, it's just further solidifying not just the super cycle in terms of iPhone, but the broader product cycle that's happened across Macs, across AirPods. I mean, we think AirPods this year, 90 million units sold. That's up from 65 million a year ago. That's going to be 5% of sales. So what you're starting to see not just on services, which is a big part of the re-rating, but Apple right now is in the biggest product cycle, not just an iPhone, but uh, if you look across the board, really in its history. And I think that speaks to why this stock has a lot more fuel in the engine. You know, right now we see 150 uh, price target, and I think potentially bull case could start to get you toward 200. 
Dan, thanks as always. We like to just kind of go across the board tech uh, with you, and you're always uh, able to give us uh, some great uh, insights. Dan Ives, Managing Director, uh, Equity Research, Wedbush Securities, uh, giving his thoughts on Tesla, Apple, and some of the stay-at-home stocks. Uh, Dan Ives, a big, big bull on technology. He's been absolutely on top of these names, and he's been absolutely right uh, riding this technology uh, bull market that we've seen really since uh, the end of the financial crisis and really come into play really just over the last 12 months as well. So we appreciate Dan's thoughts. Let's bring in now Daniel Master, who is chairman of CoinShares Group. It's a $1.8 billion platform, and as you can imagine, has a little bit to do with cryptocurrency. So, Danny, thank you for joining. Very uh, happy to have you chat with us. I'm very interested in coin shares and how it uh, inhabits the ecosystem that is crypto and cryptocurrencies and platforms. Can you explain a little bit uh, about it to us? Yeah. Um, so coin shares, uh, we make it easy uh, for institutions uh, and other investors to own Bitcoin. Um, we see this demand reflected in our uh, AUM, uh, the figures which have been rising, as you just mentioned. Um, the second thing we do is we provide liquidity. Uh, we've done about $8 billion in cryptocurrency trading volume this year, which is up about four times on last. And uh, we're helping to build and shape uh, the infrastructure of the cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem with other global banks like Nomura, creating products, uh, investing in innovative companies and building this new financial system. So, Danny, give us a sense of kind of what you're seeing just in the marketplace as to the adoption of just cryptocurrencies in general. We hear a lot about fintech, a lot about cryptocurrencies, but give us some sense of the applications you're seeing out there in the marketplace. Well, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of, of my job day to day. I think we think back to 2017, 2018 and the last peak cycle of crypto prices. Um, one of the criticisms, which I think was valid, was that not much of the infrastructure uh, had been built, not much of the software and, and new applications had been developed. But now we're seeing some fantastic companies, uh, companies like Uniswap, companies like Compound Finance, uh, DYDX, Leverage, um, and many other names who are delivering <clears throat> essentially banking services, so borrowing, lending, hypothecation, trading custody and derivatives all on the blockchain. So where do you fit into that, Danny? I mean, CoinShares, you're not a you're not a currency, right? You're a platform. Yeah, I mean, we we, we issue eight securities uh, that are listed on Nasdaq OMX in Stockholm. Uh, this makes it easy to buy and own cryptocurrency exposure through your normal bank or broker. Um, that's a big part of our business. We are investors in early stage equity for companies uh, in the ecosystem that are building exchanges, data companies, wallets, blockchains. Uh, we uh, have produced a gold-backed, a Swiss gold-backed stablecoin, uh, which is issued uh, across Europe. Uh, and we're also uh, put forward a, a very interesting indexation strategy called the CoinShares Gold and Cryptocurrency Index which pairs gold and a basket of cryptocurrencies in a risk-managed way for institutional investors. So we, we do a number of things. Well, Daniel, just on my Bloomberg terminal here, I kicked in uh, XBT, USD, uh, the Bitcoin ticker, and what a chart that is. Give us your thoughts on Bitcoin. The mood is electric at the moment. Um, we've 
seen a transformation uh, due to COVID. Uh, Bitcoin was created as a reaction to the 2008 quantitative easing program. Uh, obviously, with a situation we've all been facing in the last nine, ten months, uh, this quantitative easing uh, trend has only magnified probably three or four fold. So at the moment, uh, the market's driven by the narrative for inflation resistant investments. Uh, it's driven by digitization. Bitcoin is a store of digital value, which people want. And interestingly, uh, investors are becoming less spooked by the characteristic volatility of Bitcoin, which has been dropping uh, over the last few years. Uh, and while other investments, uh, we note the drama in the oil market earlier this year, other investments are becoming more volatile. So that volatility profile is becoming a bit more palatable. Danny, is it still a land grab? So I know, you know, for the platforms in particular, it was a bit of a land grab for a long time. Is it still the case? Who is emerging the winner when it comes to when it came to sort of taking the bets on the the infrastructure of it all? You say you do many things, so you obviously mm-hmm. placed bets in a lot of different places. And now that central mm-hmm. banks are starting to talk about it, I imagine it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. But where 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 are the places where people won? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll even wind the clock forward a little bit. I think we are contemplating a new environment, maybe two to four years forward, where central bank digital currencies uh, are the norm. And there are huge advantages for central banks for issuing such digital currencies. Um, Now, when uh, we see that, we're going to be asking the question, who's going to perform those banking services uh, in the intermediate layer, the borrowing lending, as I mentioned before, and those are interesting companies that I think are winning uh, great mind share and great market cap at the moment. But perhaps the most interesting uh, land grab uh, opportunity is for the endpoints, for those digital wallets, the, the sort of Amazon.com of digital assets. So when your gold is digital, your stocks are digital, your bonds are digital, where, is the, where are those digital assets going to be held? And it's that wallet infrastructure uh, that is the most interesting land grab. So you've seen Facebook and Libra and Calibra um, trying to take, uh, take the advantage in that space. You've got the big exchanges like Coinbase and Binance and, and maybe Bitfinex who are also uh, quite strong in the wallet infrastructure. You've got native uh, blockchain infrastructure companies like blockchain.com, one of our partners, fantastic company, 60 million wallets already. And then you have newcomers uh, like Samsung who are putting um, hardware security devices in phones uh, that can then act like digital wallets. So it could be a phone provider. And we've yet to see what other companies like Amazon, like Google may do uh, in reaction to uh, the moves that some of their competitors are making. Hey, Danny, just real quick, 20 seconds. Do you need the big, big banks, the JP Morgans of the world, to come into this market? I think that the, this intermediate layer of uh, banking services that are now emerging on chain, you know, these are big proof of concept companies, but they're growing you know, to billion dollar status very quickly. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the traditional banks, the Morgans, the Chases, and so on, are quite far behind. Everybody's got an initiative, but they seem to be. Uh, stalling, and they seem to be quite far uh, behind the rest of the pack.
Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case. Uh, Danny Masters, thanks so much for joining us here. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on all things crypto. Danny Masters, chairman, CoinShares uh, Group uh, based in London with some thoughts on the crypto market. And uh, it's a fast-growing market, but um, you know, one of the questions is, do you need the validation of some of these large global banks to really kind of propel uh, that market forward? Or can it be driven simply by the technologies? Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, as we all think about how to best manage uh, our day-to-day -day activities uh, amid the pandemic, one of the areas that's really taken uh, a hit has been mass transportation. People just don't feel comfortable uh, getting on subways and, and buses and so on. But a new report from NYU suggests that they met. That may not be uh, as big an issue as people may be thinking. Professor Mitchell Ross, I'm sorry, Mitchell Moss, director of the Rudin Center for Transportation Policy and Management, also the Henry Hart Rice Professor of Urban Policy and Planning at NYU, joins us. Professor Moss, thanks so much for joining us here. When I saw this report, it really piqued my interest because as someone like most New Yorkers, we ride the subway multiple times every day, and the assumption was that was just a breeding ground for all types of of viruses, including COVID. What did your uh, research uh, tell you? So the study we have done shows that influenza deaths, which is not the same as coronavirus, over a 10-year period have no relationship to mass transit ridership. And we believe since the spread of the virus has some similarities, this is a very important study because it confirms what has been reached in other areas of science, which is that it's sustained social interaction which is the area of highest risk for the spread of this coronavirus. So when you say influenza deaths, what about influenza hospitalizations or just contracting influenza? Were you able to get data on that? Well, we relied on death because there's one thing it's very hard to do is to hide a body. And the diagnosis, we didn't really go for the kind of number of diagnoses of influenza, which, as you know, uh, can be quite common, especially among older people. But influenza death is a very specific you know, category. I think the key part which we want to highlight here is that uh, the subway in New York, especially, but also in Hong Kong and in Paris and in certain cases, Seoul and, and Tokyo, you know, has been manageable. In other words, people are wearing masks. In some places, they're cleaning the subway cars multiple times. In New York, the air is filtered more often, you know, in a subway car than it is in most office buildings. So we believe, and it's very important here, that uh, the subway, where most people don't talk to each other, they don't look at each other, they can't hear each other because the train wheels are so loud, uh, they're focusing on their phones or their iPads, actually produces very atomistic behavior. People stick to themselves. And so the actual subway ride is not the source, we believe, of the virus compared to other settings. And how do we know this? Well, look in the state of New York. Buffalo has an infection rate three times higher than the city of New York. Buffalo is not a major subway uh, city. They have a bus system. Los Angeles in Southern California, which is having a vast surge, as you know, of cases, is an automobile city. In fact, people cannot figure out how L.A. could have so many cases given how low density some of the living is and how outdoors it is. And so the, the virus 
spreads when people are together with each other for sustained periods of time, especially indoors. The subway tends to be a managed ride, tends to have very little interaction, and the air itself there is filtered so often that it tends to present less of a risk than in many cases, I would say, going to the Oval Office. I mean, we have a chart in the media of the number of people who've been with the president who've contracted the virus. We think the subway car is safer than in the Oval Office. Yeah, but I wouldn't have wanted to ride in a subway car with the president at that time either. Well, I think that what we've seen is that the initial pandemic was so concentrated in New York that people said it must be due to mass transit. Well, And now we see, if you look at a map of the U.S., you know, you know, there are states in the upper Midwest where they wouldn't know a subway car from a limousine because, in fact, you know, they're really driving trucks. And the fact is that South Dakota and North Dakota and some of those states have had serious outbreaks from a motorcycle uh, rally. So what we would argue is that our research shows that mass transit by itself is not really tied to the spread of virus. Now, over time, we're going to learn more about the coronavirus. But uh, wait, but, Professor, can I, just, can I just clarify? Are you basing that on the fact that the people who died from influenza across the country didn't increase in areas where there were no mass transit? Is that... Is that no, I think well, wait, this is a great question. I appreciate it. So remember, this is a study of collective death. So it's no one individual case. But we have looked at where there were, you know, influenza deaths and where there were mass transit systems, and this is over 100 cities, that there's no relationship between mass transit use and the deaths from influenza. So we, we really can't talk about any one individual. We can say that the ridership of mass transit does not connect in any form to the, to the death of, by influenza. Right, because it's people's immune system and it's how they react and it's how influenza influences one person versus another person. Wouldn't that be the same for COVID? Well, I think this is a great question for which, you know, our knowledge of COVID is one year old. You know, last spring, everybody thought it was surfaces. Now we're finding out it's much more air. So I, I think, you know, and every human being, I think as you point out, is affected by the COVID very differently. If you ask any of the emergency room doctors, they'll be the first to tell you that patients experience the virus in different parts of their systems. Sometimes it's breathing, sometimes it's heart. You know, it's very, it affects people so differently that I'm not sure we can make a judgment as to, you know, how actually people are going to be affected by, you know, any one particular bout of the virus because their own composition, remember their age, their underlying conditions affect how it affects them. So, Professor, just in the next 30 seconds, um, have you discussed this with the, the city and what's the, has the MTA had any response to this study? Well, the MTA has taken a very aggressive approach to having masks being required, and the ridership shows 95% are wearing masks. I think the MTA is very familiar with the study because they've actually been very aggressive, not only in enforcing the mask requirement, but in sanitizing. That's why the stations are closed at night and the cars are cleaned. And so they're doing what they can do. Now, they've had a lot of loss of death of some of the people who work in the transit union because they have been in vulnerable situations where they're interacting with people. But I think what's amazing is that the MTA has recognized this is why they've aggressively spend a lot of money and they continue to do this in cleaning stations and the cars. The mask requirement, though, has been the best example of their success. The, the amount of use of the mask is greater than that on the sidewalks of New York City. Yeah, it's fascinating. We have to thank you, Professor. I hope you come back. Yeah, we'd love to continue to chat with you as this progresses. Professor Mitchell Moss, Director of the NYU Rudin Center for Transportation and Policy Management. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.